Michael, are you reading anything interesting at the moment? Oh, plenty as always, but especially Bliss Montage, a short story collection from Ling Ma, the author of Severance. What's it about? It's a collection of eight stories that explore themes of love and loneliness, connection and possession, friendship, motherhood, and the idea of home. It sounds right up my alley. I've read so many great reviews of this collection in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, and Esquire. It was also an editor's choice selection at the New York Times Book Review. Don't miss it. Bliss Montage by Ling Ma, published by Picador, and out in paperback now. Happy Saturday. It's September 9th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail editors who are telling you, just don't vape, kids. Just don't vape and don't go to Burning Man. Don't get stuck in the mud. Take it from a guy who's been there. It's just a bad trip. Michael, you've never been to Burning Man. Admit it. (laughs) Is it that obvious? Yes, it is. (laughs) Let's just uh, create a fiction for their listeners. Wearing like a Viking helmet and not much else. Stuck in mud. Can't see that. And in fact, blocking it from my mind. Michael, it's impossible to have fun anymore. Like you can't even go to Burning Man with no consequences. Well, you can have fun. One thing I know you and I are going to have fun doing this weekend is watching the U.S. Open, which is better than ever in a long time. Super excited about that. I'm sure you are, right? Ugh, I miss New York at this particular moment. I love watching it from afar, but it's not quite the same as following it in real time. Well, in real time, we've got a great show and we'll just jump into it. As you noted, September means school is back, but this year something's very different. And Nikolaya Rips reveals why so many teenage girls no longer sound like squeaky girls from the movie Clueless, but like raspy-throated lawyers from Staten Island. Then, the always enlightening James Walcott joins us to discuss a new book that details the fascinating kaleidoscopic culture influence of drag in New York City, from the Harlem ball scene to Stonewall to Wigstock to Kinky Boots on Broadway. And finally, it was a sad week last week with the passing of Jimmy Buffett at age 76, but his good friend Tom Freston will be here to share his memories of the incomparable singer-songwriter. Ashley, where would you like to begin this week? Well, Michael, it is back to school, and if parents don't already have enough to worry about, let's give you one more thing. This is the fact that your child's voice might be permanently damaged from, of all things, vaping. I mean, who would have thought cigarettes would look so comparatively innocuous, but no, it turns out vapes are worse than we ever possibly imagined and it has very real long-term consequences. Welcome, Nikolai Rips. She's here to join us. She is a writer and also the author of Trying to Float, Coming of Age in the Chelsea Hotel. Welcome, Nikolai. So, Nikolai, I never thought Kathleen Turner's voice was something that was coveted by Gen Z and even younger, but it turns out it's happening. It's a trend. Is there a name for vape voice yet? Where are we at in the process of this trend creation? I think it's literally called vape voice. I think here and now, vape voice. All right. So how did you come to write this story? Were you suddenly around teenage girls and you're hearing vape voice or take us inside to the moment? Well, my wonderful airmail editor, Jensen, floated the idea to me and I was slightly skeptical at first until I live here in Brooklyn. There are a lot of middle schoolers and high schoolers on my block. And I was sort of listening and on my stoop and all of them were like hitting this vape. And I thought there's really something here that's absolutely a trend. Okay, so how old are these kids that we're talking about? Because you're saying middle schoolers and I'm scared. Look, so according to the CDC, 18 to 24 is the largest group of e-cigarette users. But there's a lot of data about how it starts even younger. In middle school, one of the girls I talked to for this piece started vaping. She's now in high school, but she started vaping when she was 13. I think for middle schoolers, it's really enticing 
interesting and really easy to access. And so many of these vapes have these names like Zuvu, Elf Bars, Puff Bars, and they're in these flavors like candy apple or watermelon that really aren't meant to, I think, appeal to the average smoker. Yeah, I think a lot of these names sound like they're characters in some sort of fairy tale, but which is almost like a kid's version of Joe Camel. That's another story. So, but as you also know, like these kids are now using that because as you learned, Juul's not cool anymore. And so by the government banning Juul, they drove all this business to these new things, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I was in college, Juul was really hitting its stride and I felt hopelessly dated talking to these girls. I'd be like, oh, do you Juul? And they were like, what are you talking about? That's not it anymore. And proceed to like talk about these completely nonsensical mush. I'm going to put you on the spot, Nikolai. Can you approximate what a Juul voice sounds like for us? <laughs> It's very close to... We want you to imitate it. I don't know if my skills are up to snuff, but I mean, it's just like has a sort of crackly... Have either of you ever vaped before? We're way too old for that. Can't you tell? Come on. <laughs> That's the problem. We're the Marlboro generation, okay? See, I think the thing in over the course of writing this, I found out is that it's not, I think, as simple as just vape voice. So many of these kids start smoking cigarettes quit vaping. So it really is a combination of like average smoker voice and vape voice. Well, so that's the other fascinating piece is they're now trying to quit vaping by stepping over to cigarettes, right? Yes, exactly. It seems that there's this idea that cigarettes are easier to quit, which is totally flips the narrative around, but makes sense. It's like when you're vaping, you can just hit it constantly in class. You're just taking... They're very sneaky ways to do it. Whereas with a cigarette, it is more of a communal thing outside. You're not allowed to like light up your cigarette in the middle of your classroom. I didn't know vaping was happening there either, but it turns out, I guess I'm surprised. Okay. Well, is there any hope? Can this be reversed? I mean, basic question, but a girl can dream. I don't know. I mean, I think having some awareness of what your teens are doing, <laughs> but I think there'd have to be some kind of regulatory action about single use vapes. There's this quote in there that you've got great reporting in this story, but one of the teenagers you talked to a girl named Samantha, as she's trying to quit vaping, she says, I'd be hyperventilating in class wanting to hit it. You can't exist as a chill vapor. And just sounds like a bigger monkey on your back, as you said, than cigarettes. It's incredible. Absolutely. I mean, how is this allowed to exist? Like, is this really the society that we've created in which people are allowed to market this garbage to children? I'm sorry, I'm getting outraged right now. No, I think it's fair to be outraged. I mean, I literally had not heard of not 90% of these vapes that all the teenage girls were talking about, which I think is really a sign. Like I'm in bodega. I'm from New York. I should be seeing these. It really gave me some perspective on something I'd clearly been overlooking. All right. Well, thank you for the nightmares. Thanks also for the great story because it is really important reporting, if alarming. And thank you for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you guys for having me. Have a great day. Don't smoke, kids. Don't vape. Well, that was pretty fascinating. Yes, indeed. Well, we rely on James Wolcott for so much insight and information, but especially when it comes to New York City, he is the authority. And he is here today to talk to us about an incredible new book called Glitter and Concrete, A Cultural History of Drag in New York City by Alyssa Max Goodman, who also goes by the handle Miss Manhattan. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. So where should we start with this book? First of all, who is the author? Who is this Miss Manhattan person you've been speaking of? She's a photographer and a journalist. She also hosts a monthly kind of, it's not a soiree, it's a reading 
for nonfiction writers down in East Village. It'll be coming up, I think, on its 10th anniversary in 2024. So she always gets a varied group of writers who go down there and read. And she's just one of those people who's just fully energized and connected to everything. And this has been her dream project. And I sort of knew about it from, she was talking about it years ago, but everyone talks about books they're working on and then you just never know. But here it is. And Jim, where does the history of drag in New York City begin, at least for the purposes of this book? Well, I mean, in terms of drag performers, it can go back all the way to vaudeville and before. But in terms of the scenes, the major scenes are in Harlem with the ball culture and in the village, again, with the clubs and then just sort of like kind of rogue nightlife that became organized. It was something underground because this is pre-social media. So it was one of those you knew about it if you knew about it and if somebody else knew about it. And because it wasn't under any kind of spotlight, it could flourish on its own in the way that punk could in the 70s. So it developed its own history, its own rituals. So there's the Harlem ball culture. And this has been the subject of documentaries and also the TV series Pose. And then there's all the different clubs downtown where drag was part of the part of the action. As you sort of talk about in your essay this week, Jim, I mean, it seems one of the great connections a book makes is it intersects. It goes, as you said, from being that underground creative force to intersecting with social change with the Stonewall riot as well. Right. And when it kind of seems to me crosses over into public eye a little more. Right. Yeah. The Stonewall riot is very interesting because there's been various movements in the history of writing about it. Because it's definitely shown that drag queens were really at the center of the riot. The Stonewall, I should explain, was a bar and it was a mob owned bar and it was frequently raided. But everyone sort of knew when the raid were going to happen and who you had to pay off and who you had to get out of the place, etc. Well, on this particular night, there was no alert. No one quite knew it was coming. And there was just resistance. And the biggest resistance came from the drag queens who were there. And there was always a friction in terms of drag queens and other gay people, gay men, because a lot of them didn't like, resented the drag queens taking up so much oxygen and spoiling their night out drinking and whatever else was going on. But there was a flashpoint and it just built and built. But subsequent histories of Stonewall kind of downplayed the drag component. And now that's been restored. There's justice has been restored to the importance of it. Another thing I talk about in the review that's in the book is the importance of the Andy Warhol scene, the factory scene, because for a lot of people, that's where you saw people, drag queens. But it wasn't just individual. You realize there was like a group and you saw them in and out of drag. And you saw them in all sorts of different moods and all sorts of different kind of irritations with each other, but irritations with Andy. And some of them were just pushed out of the scene and they had all that resentment. But their names are now, I mean, Candy Darling, Jackie Curtis. I mean, these are still famous names. I mean, I never would have thought, well, there's actually now a drag queen hotel in Palm Springs establishment roots would be taken. Well, Jim, thank you so much, not only for your great story, but for shedding light on the rich and exciting and thrilling and integral to New York City element of this universe. Thank you, Jim. Bye, Jim. Thank you. Okay. Bye. 
Okay, let's take a break to discuss some other important news in books. I've recommended Rachel Aviv's Strangers to Ourselves on the podcast before, and now it too is out in paperback from Picador. You love this book. What stuck with you? Well, I've respected Aviv's work for a long time. She's published some really unforgettable stories in The New Yorker. In fact, she won a magazine award in 2022 for profile writing for a feature she did on the psychologist Elizabeth Loftus. In Strangers to Ourselves, she explores mental illness, specifically the connections between diagnosis and identity. It's such a hopeful story too. The under- underlying theme is really our resilience. Strangers to Ourselves was named one of the top 10 books of the year at the New York Times Book Review, the Wall Street Journal, and New York Magazine's Vulture. It is one of our favorites as well. Don't miss Rachel Aviv's Strangers to Ourselves, now available in paperback from Picador. All right. Well, the world lost a great last week with the death of Jimmy Buffett. And we've got Tom Freston here, who was not only a friend of Jimmy's, but also the CEO of MTV, who has had a long and illustrious career on his own to tell us all about his dear friend, Jimmy, and what made him so singular. Welcome, Tom Freston. All right. Well, Tom Freston, thank you so much for joining us. And we're so sorry for your loss. Thank you. Nice to see the both of you. Tom, as you write in your story for Airmail this week, no one had more friends than Jimmy Buffett. So how did you end up in the mix? I met Jimmy Buffett in the 70s in a bar called JP's, which used to be on First Avenue and 77th Street. This is before there was even like a downtown, really. It was sort of a nexus for the music business. And this guy, Jimmy Pullis, owned it. And people would come and play there. James Taylor, Manhattan Transfer, up-and-coming artists would do showcases. But it was basically a bar with a basement. Jimmy has played there a couple of times. I would hang out there, and that's where I met him. He was very easy to meet. What struck you initially about his personality? What drew the two of you together? Well, at the time, I was living in India mostly, and I would come back and I would hang out periodically when I came back at JP's and really just knew his music, his first couple of records, and I was attracted to the sound of it. But his persona was very open and authentic and easygoing. He had that Southern drawl, and he seemed adventurous, and it seemed like we might have some common interests. Before long, the two of you were traveling the world together. Do you remember your first trip with Jimmy? What did you learn about each other on that adventure? I'm trying to remember when the first trip was. We had a bunch of them. We went to Haiti and stayed at the Olufsen Hotel, which was sort of a character in the Graham Greene book, The Comedians, an old rundown Victorian mansion in Port-au-Prince. And there was a band that used to play there. It was a voodoo band called Ram. And they'd come around and shave voodoo water on you and everything. And Jimmy would get up and jam. There was a place that they actually had a thing called the Jimmy Buffett Suite, if you can believe it. So he stayed there and I stayed next door in the Mick Jagger Suite, which were, believe me, it was just rundown furniture and it was nothing fancy. But we had a bunch of, we've been to London and I've been to Greece and Malta, the Aeolians, throughout Africa, Cape Verde Islands, Jamaica. We, we covered a lot of ground. He, I was his friend and his good traveling pal. He had this whole group of people who were fishermen types and surfers and athletes and music business folks. He had writers and artists. He had a lot of pals. He was sort of irresistible. You have a great story about the time the two of you visited Saigon together. This was about 13 years ago and you were with Jane as well. And you had run into your friend Brian McNally and all sorts of shenanigans ensued. Tell us about that night. Well, we were there and then we ran into Brian McNally who told us he wanted to open up a nightclub in Saigon. Saigon was just sort of bubbling up with capitalism. So as he was taking us through to go see the site, we passed through the, it was pretty much the teeming red light 
White District of Saigon, which was full of guerrilla bars, the kind of things you would imagine from the Vietnam War. It was not the most tasteful place, but it was really lively. And there was this one bar called Club 16, and it was open to the street, and there was a stage. And there were these guys on there with Beatle haircuts playing cover songs. They were like from the Philippines. And Jimmy wanted to go in and sit down. Jane, of course, was mortified. We went in and sat down. But the reason Jimmy wanted to go in was he actually wanted to get up on the stage and play with these guys. This seemed just weird enough for him. He's going to go to Saigon. He's going to relive the 60s. He's going to get up and play with a Philippine cover band. So he weasels his way onto the stage and starts playing Van Morrison's Brown Eyed Girl. Full blast. And these guys were pretty sleepy, but they caught on and it, they played it for 15 minutes. I mean, it was hilarious. I'm watching him playing it. And I guess you could say it was a den of iniquity, but the street filled up with people. And when it was all over, this guy gets up in a tuxedo, something like out of the deer hunter. And he gets up and he just says, big American rock star, big American rock star. Let's hear it for him. Mr. Brown, let's hear it for Mr. Brown. I thought that was just a riot. So that was this one instance of watching Jimmy weasel his way onto other people's stages in foreign countries. Tom, one thing that comes through for me in reading your remembrance this week and listening to you now is, and I never knew him, like, obviously, but if I had to think of one word that describes Jimmy Buffett, it sounds like it's joy. And just a guy who gave joy to so many other people through his music, but I was like, just getting on the stage and not for his own self, but to entertain people and just to keep giving that joy. Is that a good word for him, you think? Yeah, a perfect word. I mean, he was joyful. People would say, oh, he invented this character. And in a sense, he did invent this character that you conjure up. But this character was a joyful character, but it was not really greatly at odds with his authentic self. He lived life to the fullest, this guy. He could do like 10 different things in a day. Two of us would be moseying around. He's already been surfing, taking a Spanish lesson, played some tennis, done some work, recorded some music. I mean, he ran in like in a straight line, but his gift was to be an entertainer. He loved it. He loved it like, say, there even in Saigon. And he had a great sense of humor. And he never took anything really too seriously. And he realized that his audience came to see him. They didn't want to hear about politics. People have busy lives and they were really looking for a couple of hours to kind of just let it go and be joyful. So he was a master at the craft. There's really nobody like him. Now keep thinking, well, who can come up and sort of have that kind of persona these days and have that kind of command within the culture? I don't know if it's possible anymore for someone to be a Jimmy Buffett or to be like a lot of the kind of legacy performers we know from the 70s and 60s and 80s. Tom, one of the many things we admired about Jimmy was not only his music and his personality, but also this incredible business he built, right, with Margaritaville and sort of this massive Jimmy Buffett empire. You have experience in this realm as well, quite a bit of it, in fact. What do you make of him as an entrepreneur? It's fantastic. I mean, people always would say the most valuable song ever recorded was White Christmas by Bing Crosby because they would play that every year and that was a big, get a lot of music royalties. The most valuable song ever recorded in a was Margaritaville that when it came out was never really a hit, but he's got everything from flip-flops to retirement communities now. And you can laugh at the idea of a retirement community, Latitude Margaritaville, but there's waiting lists to get into these. But his business acumen is great. And just when you think that you can't come up with another Margaritaville twist, I mean, it's a hotel, it's a casino, it's a timeshare, it's a retirement community. I used to tell him the only thing missing is sort of the cemetery where all the Jimmy Buffett fans can go. That's pretty funny. When I think of Jimmy and I think of good friends, good friendships, is there a piece of wisdom he shared you through the years that you always held on to or thought that you were going to remember from him? Well, a simple one. Whenever he'd send you an email 
at the end of it, instead of saying like all the best or sincerely or whatever, and you just say fins up. Well, that was one of his catchphrases. But built into that was the idea of like, just go forward, be happy to be here, be happy to be alive. And another thing he'd always say, do you believe we are actually get a chance to do these things? This is so fantastic. So I can't think of like one single piece of language, but effusive in his praise for life, the joy that it had, and he just felt commanded to sort of broadcast that to everybody. And people certainly received it well because everybody, see, Jimmy Buffett would put a smile on their face. When you hear his name, you put a smile on your face. There's nothing ever bad about the guy. He has no enemies. He's really like sort of one of a kind. We could use a lot more like him. He was also a legendary family man. I mean, he was so close with his wife, Jane, and his three children. These are all close friends of yours as well. Give us a little sense about that legacy that he left behind and also what Jane Buffett is like. I mean, she's such a force in her own right. She's very private. Very few people know her, but she was instrumental in the creation of Jimmy's businesses. Jane was that old phrase behind every successful man is a strong woman. I mean, Jane's a strong woman. She hooked up Jimmy with Irving Azoff the ace manager, who's been a great pal and partner for Jimmy for, God, I don't know, 40 some odd years now, more than that. She hooked him up with this fellow, John Colhan, who came out of Goldman Sachs, who was really his partner in Margaritaville Enterprises, who did all these deals for these hotels and restaurants. She's a strong woman. Obviously, this is a big blow for her, but you never know when there's a death it takes a while for people to kind of recalibrate, but I'd say that she's handling it well. The family, there's Savannah, who's a daughter who's been involved in a lot of Jimmy's business enterprises over the year, and Delaney, who's now sort of a successful writer and producer, throwing out in Hollywood, and Cameron, who's worked in the video gaming world, who's like an ace tennis player. Well, please send them our condolences as well, Tom. I think we've probably caught you in the middle of Jimmy Buffett land, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I'm out here in Sag Harbor, and I've been here for, I've seen this whole thing transpire. And Jimmy's death got a lot of big news, and it was deserved. But there was another thing. No one really knew he was sick. He had been diagnosed with this really rare, lethal form of skin cancer four and a half years ago called Merkel cell. He didn't want anyone really to know. He would let a perfectly normal life for four years and change. I mean, it was like with immune therapy and then things just kind of began to went south. But he didn't want anyone to know he was sick. He didn't want anyone to feel sorry for him. All summer long, it was, I want people to have a good time. I want people, I want the party to continue. And it did, like at his house in Sag Harbor, was a very joyful and all kinds of friends gathered around. Paul McCartney came over, who's a great friend of Jimmy's, and sat on the patio outside his bedroom and played on five Beatles songs. Can you imagine that? Jimmy admired the Beatles. Just love the Beatles and we became great friends with Paul late in life. And then there was just a parade of people coming through to send him off. So his, he, one of his places he wanted his ashes scattered it was in outer space. So he'll be up there, I guess, with Hunter Thompson and Timothy Leary. I don't know who else is up there. Well, he deserves everything. He was really one of a kind, Tom. And thank you so much for shedding new light on who he was and what his legacy means to everyone. Sure thing. Yeah, he'll be missed. That's for sure. Michael, what's your favorite Jimmy Buffett song? Mine would be A Pirate Looks at 40. And you, my dear? Would you think differently of me if I said Cheeseburger in Paradise? No, I think you and I would be a perfect match. That's why this show works so well. A little fun, a little seriousness. We complement each other so well. Livingston Saturday Night. I like a lot of Jimmy Buffett songs, frankly, and I've been listening to a lot of them this week. Michael, speaking of that, it is the weekend. Do you have any recommendations, anything at all? I've got this kind of crazy recommendation because I know you and I like scandals and 
con guys and sketchy behavior. Have you seen this documentary on Apple TV called Wanted, The Escape of Carlos Ghosn? No, sounds delicious. He's the former head of Nissan and Renault, the CEO, who under a very extraordinary clandestine back in 2019, escaped from Japan to Lebanon inside of a musical case in order to avoid prosecution. And this is the first time he's spoken about it in public. It's four part. It's pretty fascinating. It's a little bit of succession. It's a little bit of a whodunit. So I would recommend it. It's a nice little way to see what goes in the on the mind of someone who's very calculating. And it's on Apple Plus. And you, my dear? Well, Michael, I had a pretty incredible week. I finished Deadwood, one for the ages. And then I'm sorry to say I followed it up with some lighter fare. I hadn't read Curtis Sittenfeld's new novel, Romantic Comedy, which came out in April. And oh, it's so good. It's like everything you want. I mean, it's a, it's basically about a writer on Saturday Night Live who falls in love with the musical guest slash host. And it's a love story for the ages. And they get together during the pandemic and it has a happy ending. And I just love everything about it. I'm sorry. Like, this is who I am. And then in a true hat trick, I started another great novel, which is Penance by Eliza Clark. Eliza's a young British novelist. As you know, we've covered a lot of the UK and I have wide wildly enjoyed this. It's a follow-up to her 2020 debut, which was called Boy Parts, which I also loved. It was incredibly dark. And this one is about three girls who murder one of their friends and classmates. It's called Penance by Eliza Clark. Addictively good novel from a young British novelist that you should all read. On that note, Michael, we wish you all a wonderful weekend. Will you please read us out? I'd love to. But first, thanks to our sponsor, Picador Books. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King and Julie Vitale and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.